Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never be able to ease the people's love of liberty. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. President Biden gets a raucous welcome in Poland, vowing that a united NATO will never abandon Ukraine, while Vladimir Putin tries to justify his disastrous war to the Russian people. Meanwhile, the pro-insurrectionist caucus in the House would very much like to see Ukraine lose, one tweeting, quote, Ukraine is not our friend and Russia is not our enemy. Plus, the forewoman says the Georgia special grand jury looking into Trump's plot to overturn the 2020 election recommended multiple indictments, and that list is not short. Good evening, everyone. Jason Johnson in for Joy Reid, and we are just days away from the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of a sovereign country, Ukraine. And today, President Biden, standing in front of the royal castle, a historical landmark in Warsaw that was rebuilt after another invading force, the Nazis destroyed it, framed this fight against Russia as a larger battle against autocracy. President Putin is confronted with something today that he didn't think was possible a year ago. The democracies of the world have grown stronger, not weaker. But the autocrats of the world have grown weaker, not stronger. Grossly underestimated the NATO alliance. One year year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition. But he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided and we will not tire. (laughs) President Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail. And he reminded Putin that all of this would actually end if Putin would withdraw his occupying forces. This war is never a necessity. It's a tragedy. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the war with a word. A few hours earlier, Putin delivered a dystopian speech riddled with lies claiming that Russia was the real victim in their invasion of Ukraine. We're not fighting in Ukraine. We said that the Ukrainian people have become hostages of their Western masters who occupied this country in in political, in economic and military sense. The elites of the West are not hiding their goals. They are, as they say, trying to inflict a strategic... um, defeat on Russia. 
Oh, so they're liberators. Where have we heard that before? Uh, it was Russian forces that actually invaded Ukraine a year ago, using a string of justifications that keep literally blowing up in Putin's face. First, it was to save Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Then Russian-speaking Ukrainians took up arms against his invading army. Then it was to denazify Ukraine, but Putin himself is the grand wizard of global right-wing movements. Some of Russia's more candid political leaders have admitted it's a war of genocide. But not even that has worked because the Russian people domestically have protested against a war that they see domestically as costly and pointless. Putin initially assumed that his invasion would be Russia's version of Desert Storm, maybe a month of combat before he could claim victory in front of the Duma. Now, a year later, it's more like his Afghanistan. And a sign of just how bad things are for the Russian military, the founder of the Russian mercenary group, the mercenary Wagner group, Yevgeny Progizin, has launched a very vocal broadside against the Russian military, accusing them of failing to properly arm Putin's forces. Today, Putin announced he would suspend Russia's participation in the new START nuclear nonproliferation agreement, the last remaining arms control treaty between the United States and Russia, charting a dangerous path ahead for U.S.-Russia relations and one that could bring us closer to the Cold War than ever before. Joining me now is William Taylor, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. He is currently vice president for Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And Nayar Haq, former White House senior director and former State Department senior advisor. Nayar, I'll start with you. Um, I, 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 I don't get happy when I hear this is returning us to the Cold War. I get concerned when I hear that Russia wants to pull out of a nonproliferation agreement how serious is it? I mean, I know that apparently this deal was already on its last legs, but how serious a move is it that Russia has said, yeah, now we're not even going to bother with inspectors for nuclear weapons? Well, they, they are saying out loud what they have been acting on behind the scenes, by and large. They have not allowed verification, which is a key part of verifying that both countries are reducing the nuclear arsenal. But it goes to the broader idea of Putin just doing away with the Western sense of alliances, the post-World War II order in which Russia was on the side of the allies. Right. And Putin framing, now it's him and African countries, even with uh, the foreign minister going to Africa and talking about the hypocrisy of the West. So we're seeing this very interesting realignment while Putin internally is has a is a propaganda machine. He, the people of Russia don't see what the rest of us are seeing, what you are mentioning, what's happening in Ukraine. And they are, this is the first time in the speech that Putin ever mentioned the word war when talking about the one-year conflict that he instigated in Ukraine. So the people of Russia are not in a great place, and Putin is trying to normalize the idea of talking about nuclear weapons and having nuclear weapons because he does not have much left. Ambassador, you know, one of the major concerns that that I have also is that this next step, if Vladimir Putin does not have an escape hatch, it, it's been a year. Uh, this is likely to be a conflict that will continue for a while. If Russia doesn't have an escape hatch and their conventional forces don't seem to be working very well anymore, then nuclear weapons might be the only option he sees. How how concerned is the U.S. government about that right now? And and are there negotiation options on the table to maybe ratchet this conflict down? Jason, there are not negotiation options on the table right now. There may be sometime in the future. Um, and it, then it will depend on President Putin understanding, coming to the conclusion that he can't win on the battlefield. Then he might sit down. That's, that's, what, that's why we have to 
support the Ukrainians as they push back, as they push push way back. So this is the this is the issue, Jason. The question is the support for Ukraine, allowing them to push the Russians out uh, of their nation. All the Ukrainians are after is the Russians out of their country. As you indicated, as you described at the beginning, the Russians invaded in 2014 and then invaded massively in 2022. They have an option. The, 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 the off-ramp, the exit ramp um, for Putin is to just pull out. He's got 11 times. He's not bottled up. Right. His, his, his back is not to the wall. He's got a big country. He doesn't need Ukraine. Jason, he had he lived without Crimea since Four 1954. Since he doesn't need Crimea. Um, so so, yes, he can stop this anytime and he can begin the negotiations uh, on, on that basis. I think on that basis, the Ukrainians would be happy. They've said they'd be happy to negotiate at that time. Nayara, so this this is the one that also gets me. Uh, you know, there are lots of people uh, in the international left and, and, and sort of international peace advocates who've said, you know what? We would have already had a peace deal on the table, but America and the West, they want this to be a proxy war now. And it's not it, it's not the same thing as parroting Putin's talking points. There are people who said, hey, look, you could give up this bit of land. You could move people here and there. This war only exacerbates conflict in the region. Is there is there legitimacy to that? Is there a legitimacy to the argument that now Ukraine might be so far into this and the West and NATO are so far into it that realistic diplomatic options are no longer on the table? It's fascinating to see the left unite with Henry Kissinger when it comes to foreign policy issues, particularly with Ukraine, because suddenly the human rights and the genocide of Ukrainians is not the number one driving issue. It's the idea of the United States not engaging militarily, the United States pulling back from alliances. And it raises the question of what is all that military spending for? What is NATO? What are all these alliances for if at the end of the day, the United States is not going to stand up for the very principles it created? It's, you know, the United States is the only country that's actually activated the NATO alliance for military conflict that was a threat to the United States. This is, Biden's been very careful and very forceful of making this about uh, a conflict for Ukraine and the defense of Ukraine's democracy and not about NATO and Russia. That's Putin's language. He wants this to be this grander conflict. He wants this to be a peace discussion on his terms where he gets to carve off pieces of a sovereign country. And Ambassador Taylor is right. He can walk out any minute if his psychology and his ego would let him do that. I have to say, Ambassador, you know, one of the things that's been interesting is is the rhetoric that we're hearing from Russia. They're getting awful bellicose for people who seem to be backed into a corner. But, you know, everybody everybody gets everybody gets really, really tough when they realize that they may actually be losing. I want to play this sound right now about the Russians saying that they allowed Biden to go to Kiev and to go to Warsaw and then get your thoughts on the other side. Также подтверждает, вы знаете, что мы абсолютно правы. Мы цивилизованная страна. А Байден приехал в Киев, потому что уверен, он получил гарантии безопасности. So, so basically what we're seeing here is that President Biden went to the Ukraine, went to Warsaw, because he was trying to make a point that, like, look, the United States supports the independence of these countries, and no, Poland will not be next on Russia's list. And the Russians have decided to frame that as, hey, we let you, we let you go here. We weren't, we didn't have to let you in. When you see that sort of thing, 
you know, Ambassador, is it is it clear that Russia is just in the propaganda mode of trying to cover their own sort of weakness uh, when it comes to this conflict? Or was that a real threat? Was it really the assumption that if you guys try that again, if you send other representatives, we might actually attack them or shoot them down? <clears throat> Jason, total propaganda. Total propaganda. I mean, you, you get those talk shows. You know about talk shows. Right. Um, and, and, and people can say whatever they want. That is a strange one right there. But let me go back to uh, Naya's point. I think she's exactly right to raise the issue of genocide, to raise the issue of war crimes, of atrocities. What the Russians are doing in Ukraine is horrible. It, it is horrible. And to suggest that the Ukrainians ought to just give up some of the land, give up some territory where Ukrainians live, knowing what happens uh, when the Russians occupy that. What part of the United States would we want to give up? You know, that's that's what Ukrainians are asking. They're not eager at all to give up their their own territory where their citizens live, knowing what happens to those citizens. So so that's what they're fighting for. They're fighting for democracy. They're fighting for human rights. um, And that's why we're supporting them. Ambassador William Taylor and Nayar Haq, thank you so much for starting us off on a readout today. Thank you. Up next on the show, America's pro-Putin party and Marjorie Taylor Greene casually calls for a divorce between red and blue states. My question is, in a divorce between the states, does that mean she has to leave Georgia? It's blue, Marjorie. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. As President Biden makes a case for solidarity with Ukraine, the loudest voices from the pro-Putin, pro-insurrection wing of the MAGA Republican organization, because they're not a party, are absolutely losing it. The usual suspects, Matt Gaetz, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Lauren Boebert, are all complaining about how President Biden should be here at home and going to East Palestine, Ohio, side of the hazardous train derailment. It's not unusual for an opposition party to attack a president for what he's doing internationally rather than domestically. This is something that's always happened. But the current MAGA Republican organization isn't just an opposition party. It's an anti-democracy organization masquerading as a party to cover up for a terrorist movement. And they're actively coddling insurrectionists. Matt Gates used his complaining to push support for his Ukraine fatigue resolution, demanding an immediate end to Ukrainian aid. His co-sponsors, in addition to Boebert and Green, January 6th rally planners Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar. Surprise! In fact, the hard right Gosar is doing the most to carry Vladimir Putin's tainted water. He tweeted, quote, Ukraine is not our friend. 
and Russia is not our enemy. Joining me now is Congressman John Garamendi of California, who just returned from a trip to Polish-Ukrainian border, and former RNC chair Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast, an MSNBC political analyst, and one of the best dressers I have seen this evening. Michael, uh, <laughs> I had to compliment on that first. Uh, first of all, Congressman, I, I have to ask you this. You just got back uh, from the Ukrainian-Poland uh, border. What is the mood on the ground for Ukrainians? It has been almost a year. Uh, they have seen pretty consistent support from the United States, um, but they are still facing an army that is much larger than the one that they can put together. What's the mood on the ground in the Ukraine? Well, within Ukraine, it's we are going to win. We will not allow Russia to dominate us. The boot of Putin will not be on our neck. We are a democracy and we're going to fight. We're going to fight to save our democracy. That's the mood in Ukraine. We heard that uh, in our discussions. Uh, you can see that on television anywhere. Uh, the other side of the border in the NATO countries, there is extraordinary concern that if Ukraine were to fall, Moldova would be next and then Romania. And there would be a major test of NATO that Putin is very clear. Before this conflict started, NATO and the United States attempted to negotiate with Putin. Putin came back and basically said, NATO out of Eastern Europe, we're going to reestablish, he wants to reestablish the Warsaw Pact and the uh, Soviet Union. So uh, there's a, a very clear determination on the part of the Eastern European nations, NATO nations, that they're all in. And thank God, so is America and so is our president. Michael Steele, I, I pointed this out in the opening because I think it's important. Whatever party doesn't control the White House tends to be the anti-interventionist party, right? When, when Republicans have the White House, Democrats are like, what are you doing in this, this foreign war? When Democrats have the White House and Republicans aren't in, they're like, what are you doing in this war? So we know that historically. But what we're seeing from the Republican Party for years now is sort of, advocacy for countries that previously had been the United States enemies. We've got, you know, complaints from Representative Scott Perry. He's like, oh, but, you know, breathtaking that Biden can show up in Ukraine and ensure their border is secure, but can't do the same for America, et cetera, et cetera. You've got people claiming that Russia is actually a friend of the United States. My question domestically, Michael, who the heck does this work for? I mean, is, is there somebody in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin right now who's like, you know what? My vote is driven by whether or not the United States is giving money to Ukraine and how we fight Russia? No, this isn't about that. This is about uh, the level of coddling that we've seen um, going back to the Trump administration. Um, they like the feel. They like the vibe of authoritarianism. They like to be in charge. Look, and you're looking at the class clowns who ordinarily are put in the back of the room and are not given microphones. They're not allowed to the front. They're not even allowed to raise their hand. But now they're calling the shots. That's the power that Kevin McCarthy has given them. So we need to buckle up and just, uh, you know, settle, settle in for a lot more of this as we get into the presidential cycle. Um, so when you see and hear this going on the way it is, the reality of it is very simply put for, the, for a lot of these people is what, what benefit can I get writ right. large? There's the grift. There is the, the, the clicks on, on their favorite social media platform, but it's also carrying that narrative a lot further. Because at the end of the day, to the congressman point, the boot on the neck will be their neck right. <laughs> if Putin gets his way. 
right? So we're looking at these anti-democratic uh, politicians inside the Republican organization. I like the way you put that. This is not political party anymore. Yeah. This is more a sort of a media-driven reality TV based organization that sort of puts out these narratives, you know, like the crazy that Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted about, you know, succeeding, you know, succession and and the country is, you know, impeaching Joe Biden over what? Standing with our allies, reinforcing the, the, the best uh, uh, that a lot of Americans, quite frankly, want to see reinforced in our relationships abroad, protecting democracy. So this is the narrative that they're going to push um, and remember who they are and where they come from, but also remember how they're getting the power they're exerting right now. Congressman, I actually want to play you uh, some sound from the class clown uh, that Michael Steele just referred to. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, giving, I guess, advice about how America should operate and what should happen when people move from red to blue states and get your thoughts on the other side. What I think would be something that some red states could propose is, well, okay, if if Democrat voters uh, choose to flee these blue states, well, once they move to a red state, guess what? Maybe you don't get to vote for five years. Now, the part that makes me laugh about this is if that applied, Herschel Walker would have been able to vote or run in the state of Georgia. But, but that being said, you know, Congressman, when you hear this kind of nonsense, it's not just that these people are, are, are inappropriate and that they, they, they want to overthrow the United States. I always want to make that point. But there's actual governing to be done. So looking at what's going to be necessary to keep Ukraine from falling to Russia do you have to just negotiate around people like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Uh, do you just depend on the Senate? Do you depend on sort of executive action from the White House? Because clearly they're not going to engage in any sort of common sense foreign policy that the United States can really stand behind. Well, the good news is within the Republican Party, there are Republicans in Congress that would have great empathy with what Michael Steele is enduring. That is, their party is being ripped apart by the mega crazies, by the extremists. And unfortunately, in Congress today, they have gained the margin of power. A handful mm -hmm. of them, I think you had about right. 10 of them up on the screen. That is the power of a speakership in their hands. And they're using that power uh, right now to, I don't mouth off a whole lot of really crazy and very, very dangerous talk. And unfortunately, it's being picked up by at least one other uh, media company. Uh, and will it end? I think it will. And I think yeah. there's going to be an evolution, maybe a revolution within the Republican caucus, because there are many, many Republicans in that caucus that are absolutely outraged and very, very upset. And they may very well decide that it's time to work directly with the Democrats uh, and try to develop yeah. a public policy going forward. That I makes rational sense. Congressman, you are way more optimistic than me. <laughs> Congressman John Garamendi, <laughs> uh, Michael Steele, thank you much for joining us on The Readout tonight. Thank you. Up next, the foreperson of the Fulton County Grand Jury says they recommend multiple indictments and, quote, won't be surprised by who they think should be targeted. More on that next on The Readout.
that major scandal regarding Donald Trump and a tape call crushing Georgia Secretary of State to find the votes to overturn the election? There's now a huge development in that story. A special grand jury that investigated election interference by the former twice impeached president recommended indictments of multiple people on a range of charges. The special grand jury's forewoman, Emily Kors, told the New York Times that, quote, it is not a short list. Late today, NBC's Blaine Alexander also sat down with Coors for her first televised interview. She shared more on what to expect from that list. So we're talking about more than a dozen people? I would say that. Yes. Okay. Are these recognizable names, names that people would know? There are certainly names that you would recognize. Did the grand jury recommend an indictment of former President Trump? I'm not going to speak on exact indictments. I don't, think, indictment. I don't think that there are any giant plot twists coming. I don't think that there are any, like, giant... That's not the way I expected this to go at all. Mm. I, I don't think that's in store for anyone. Joining me now is Democratic strategist Kurt Bardella and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Michigan School of Law and MSNBC legal analyst. Barbara, I'll start with you. I, I, I was riveted by that interview because the, 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 the forewoman seems like somebody who like one survivor, but she's got to wait a couple of months because of the NDA. She can't tell you like what what just from your from your assessment. What is it like to see a foreman basically say, hey, there's surprises coming, but you shouldn't be too surprised? What, the, what might that indicate about what this grand jury concluded? Well, first, Jason, as a former prosecutor, I cringe anytime you see a grand jury foreperson uh, talking about what happened before the grand jury. There are grand jury secrecy rules to protect people who might be under suspicion. Now, I think she probably complied with the letter of the rule, which says she's not supposed to talk about the grand jury's deliberations. And so she was careful not to say who might be recommended for indictment or, or how that went, went down. But boy, she comes awfully close to that. So it makes me a little bit nervous. But I do think when she says that they recommended that uh, more than a dozen people be indicted. And then in direct response to that question about Donald Trump, she says it's, you know, it's not going to be too surprising. Um, she's also talked about the phone calls they, they listened to about Donald Trump. So, you know, I don't know whether they, they did or didn't recommend Donald Trump, but uh, it sounds like, you know, if I were a betting person, I'd bet the answer is yes. See, this is the thing, Kurt, and this is, this is, where, this is where this gets me. All of this is sort of us litigating the criminality and the attempts to overturn the 2020 election. But that pales in comparison to the nonsense we're already seeing for the 2024 election. We've got Ron DeSantis running around and he's giving speeches. You got Nikki Haley running around. She's giving speeches. And this is my question to you. And I'm going to play you some sound, but I have to set this up properly. In my view, there are three states yet you can't really run from if you're trying to win across America. You run from New York. You're too crazy. You're liberal. You run from California. You're too crazy. You're liberal. You're trying to make sure I can't get plastic straws. You run from Florida. It's all crystal meth and alligators, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's what people think. And I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm saying those are sort of the national reputations of those states. So when you see Ron DeSantis running and claiming that he's going to do for America what he's done in Florida, it seems like that'd be a problem. I'm going to play you some sound from him and then also how that's failed in the past and get your thoughts on the other side. So what have we done in Florida? When they were talking about defunding police and slashing budgets, 
We said, uh, not on my watch. As much as I'm proud that Florida is doing well, I want the country to do well. I want all of these communities to do well. Now, Kurt, that may make sense in some context. He can talk about policy, right? Mm -hmm. But are those policies the first things that everybody thinks about coming out of Florida? No. I mean, we must have entered some sort of quantum realm here if Ron DeSantis thinks that the entirety of the United States of America wants to have happen in our country what he has done to the state of Florida. If he thinks, for instance, that most of this country, they want to spend their time banning books, if they want to spend their time dealing with mass shootings, if they want to spend their time ignoring the catastrophic impacts of climate change, which, by the way, will hit the state of Florida first, uh, that's not a recipe for a, a good national conversation, a healthy national conversation. And when you factor that in with the absolute lunacy we're hearing from the Republican Party overall in the state of Michigan. They just elected a party chair. That's an election denier. We look at what Marjorie Taylor Greene spent the President's Day weekend talking about secession and basically the violent overthrow of government. This is where the Republican Party is at right now. It's not a conversation that the rest of this country wants to have. And you know that just look at the the lack of interest in the BS investigations that the Republicans are, are running around doing. Every single poll up and down says no one's interested in that, yet they keep doubling down on this failed strategy. Barbara, I'm going to hit you with a political question because I think this is this is this is relevant. We've seen Ron DeSantis use his political power, use policy, threats, government, everything else like that to try to bully Disney. Right. He's tried to bully Disney and, and has portrayed them as a company that supports or engages in behavior that leads to criminality. But all that brings to mind to me is a former president who decided he wanted to attack something very popular. I want to play you some sound from Mitt Romney and get your thoughts on the other side. I'm going to stop the subsidy to PBS. I'm going to stop other things. I like PBS. I love Big Bird. I actually like you, too. But I'm not going to I'm not going to keep on spending money on things to borrow money from China to pay for. So the guy who said I'm going to put Big Bird out of a job ended up not winning. I don't see how the guy who says, I think Disney Plus is the home of groomers and pedophiles is going to do well. Do you think, Barbara, nationally, that when people look, when, when, when businesses and, 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 and focus groups and lawyers organizations look at how he's using the laws in his state to abuse an entity like Disney, do you think that makes him more popular? Do they, you think that makes organizations want to come to the aid of his potential national campaign? Yeah, you know, there's an interesting divide, I think, in the Republican Party. There is the traditional, you know, Chamber of Commerce business base, and there is uh, sort of the mega Trump group uh, that wants to engage in the culture wars. And I don't know that you can win any state without having both of those constituencies. And so I think the more uh, that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis alienates the Chamber of Commerce business community, I think the less likely he is able to win a state. And, you know, I think nationwide that's uh, that's been true. And so uh, I think at some point you know, losing those those kinds of business votes is not good politics. You know, Kurt, a lot of times I think Republicans are more interested in the fight than the actual victory. They spent 60 years trying to overthrow abortion. Now they don't know what to do. They're in this fight now with Disney and all sorts of cultural things. But these aren't cultural battles that you can actually win. Where does this actually put someone like Ron DeSantis when he decides to go outside of the sort of bubble of right wing media? How does that play in Texas where people are watching Disney Plus? How does that play in Illinois where people are like, hey, we decided we actually want to go see Ant-Man Quantumania? How does this play out with normal people? It plays out terribly for him. Listen, when you spend more time going after Mickey Mouse 
than after, than after like mass shootings, there's a problem there. There's a complete disconnect with where real people and real parents are at. When you spend more time banning books and going after curriculum and inventing scare tactics to try to justify what is an outright white nationalist racist agenda, you're alienating a large swath of the population. You, you are fundamentally unelectable outside of your little bubble. And we're seeing now with the veneer Fox News being pierced recently, with all the revelations about what they really think about what's going on in the country and how different that is from what they present publicly, the, the, anytime they have to go outside of that world, it's not good. They just fold and they don't know how to talk about things beyond that world. Ron DeSantis will go up on a debate stage one day and you will see him vulnerable. You will see him tripping over himself. You will see him not be able to put together a comprehensive, coherent thought because he doesn't know how to do that. Apparently, it is a small media world after all in the right wing. And Ron DeSantis is trapped in it. Kurt Bardella and Barbara McQuaid, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Still ahead, a high-stakes primary in Wisconsin today as voters choose a swing seat on a state Supreme Court with reproductive and voting rights at stake. We'll be right back on The Readout. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Wisconsin voters are casting their ballots right now, as we speak, in what is potentially the most consequential election of 2023. And it's only in February, one you probably haven't even heard of. It is the primary for an open seat on the state Supreme Court. Typically, this kind of race wouldn't garner much attention. But in this case, the race between two conservative and two liberal candidates is a chance for progressives to flip the balance of power in what is now a 4-3 conservative court. The top two finishers in today's primary will advance to a general election in April, and those results could quickly have local and national implications for this very crucial swing state. An ideologically liberal Wisconsin Supreme Court would revisit some recent conservative wins that blocked the use of ballot drop boxes and protected gerrymandered legislative maps that heavily favored conservatives. And the court is set to hear a lawsuit that could look to throw out the state's 1849, not 19, 1849 law banning abortion in nearly all cases. So you can understand why millions of dollars have been poured into this election. It's expected to be the most expensive election for a single state Supreme Court seat in U.S. history. Republicans need to spend big to get out the vote in an off-year election when their biggest motivating issue, overturning Roe versus Wade, has already been achieved. Joining me now is someone who knows Wisconsin better than most people, Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor, Charlie, probably the most prominent political voice out of Wisconsin, outside of Aaron Rodgers. Uh, I got to ask you, <laughs> when, I, when I think of this race, you know, 
just on the ground, right? I've, I've, I've lived in states where people were really passionate about a Senate race. People are really passionate about a governor's yeah. race. How excited are people on the ground for a state Supreme Court race? Like, are people really ginned up about this or is it something that the media is paying attention to because of the national implications? Well, no. First of all, I mean, the stakes are are not overhyped. Um, everything is at stake with this election. And so this is my mailbox in the last uh, couple of days. <laughs> wow. Everything that my mailbox is just filled with uh, campaign literature for the candidates for Supreme Court. You can't turn on television without being inundated. Social media um, is absolutely filled with it. Um, look, I've been covering these races for more than 30 years. I've never seen anything quite like this, including um, the way that this has been nationalized and, and the way that you have uh, Democrats and progressive groups who uh, I, I think have downplayed these races in the past, but they are focused on this because the stakes in Wisconsin are so clear. It is a 4-3 conservative majority that has made it very, very clear uh, that they would be prepared um, to uh, restrict access to voting booths. Uh, who knows what else they might do? Abortion is on the ballot. They will revisit Scott Walker's Act 10. There's just so many issues that are out there. Uh, so uh, tonight's race is um, officially, as you know, Jason, nonpartisan. There is nothing <laughs> actually nonpartisan about it. Uh, the literature that I'm holding up here is nakedly political. Um, you have, uh, you know, so to the two conservatives who are fighting against one another rather bitterly um, are vying with one another in saying exactly how they would rule on abortion, exactly what they would do on these various issues. So, so much for the independent judiciary. But it's going to be very interesting to see who, who emerges from tonight's primary. So, Charlie, that that's one thing that sort of gets me. And it's it's the larger sort of philosophical question at play here. You have a situation where. The major, one of the most important driving issues for conservatives in America over the last 40-something, 50 years was abortion, right? We've got to end the, the mass killing of all the abortion rhetoric. You raise money, you, you got out the vote, et cetera, et cetera. Is it harder to galvanize Republican voters and conservative voters now when the battle's kind of been won, right? Like, it seems to me that it would be easier to, to, to sort of galvanize liberal voters and pro-choice voters who are afraid of something being taken than conservative voters now who feel like, hey, we got the highest court in the land on our side. Why do I still need to get excited about this? Yeah, uh, two things there. Um, the uh, the more progressive voters do seem more galvanized this year than I've ever seen them before in one of these races. And secondly, um, while the pro uh, while there are two progressives on the ballot, um, it has not been a contentious primary. However, there's real division among the conservative candidates. I mean, this is a bitter civil war. They have decided that this would be the moment to have a food fight. So um, in the past, you would have the right reasonably uh, uh, united here in Wisconsin. Right. They are not. This has been a very, very bitter primary. It reminds me of the primary uh, for governor here last year. Everybody thought the Republicans were going to win the governorship. Um, they had a very bitter primary and as a result lost it. So um, I, I think that that's part of the storyline as well, the, the conservative crack up, because a lot of this literature is conservatives attacking other conservatives. Uh, you know, and and uh, you, you have one of the candidates who is saying that he's not pledging to support the other one. Nothing like this is happening now 
with the progressive candidates. So uh, we will see whether or not they're going to be able to come out of this primary and be able to put things back together because they only have until April to do that. So um, this is one of the reasons why I think the progressives have been so optimistic about this. They have the money. They have the momentum. They have the motivation. And they're sitting back and watching conservatives take shots at one another. Very much a, a circular firing squad with a lot of uh, personal bitterness. I want to add this real quick. In the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, uh, the Supreme Court candidate Daniel Kelly was paid $120,000 by Republicans to work on election integrity. Where where does the just really quick, where does the role of, of the 2020 election come into play? Do you still have Republicans very quickly saying, hey, look, I won't support anything that doesn't have Trump? Like, where is that playing out in this race right now? This is very, very, uh, this is very divisive. And that story just broke in the last couple of days. So if Dan Kelly, who has been a Supreme Court justice in the past, was defeated for re-election, so he's already lost a statewide vote, if he wins the primary tonight, um, I think he will be very vulnerable, particularly because of the role he played in election denialism, taking the $120,000 and his role with the fake electors. So that is going to be a huge issue in the general issue election if he survives the primary tonight. Charlie Sykes, thank you so much for joining us from Wisconsin. Appreciate it. Up next, the head of the EPA makes another visit to the scene of that toxic train derailment in Ohio with a solemn promise for concerned residents. More next on The Readout. Let me also be crystal clear. Norfolk Southern will pay for cleaning up the mess that they created and the trauma that they inflicted on this community and impacted Beaver County residents. Today I'm announcing that EPA is ordering Norfolk Southern to conduct all necessary actions associated with the cleanup from the East Palestine train derailment. EPA Administrator Michael Regan was back in East Palestine, Ohio today, demanding that the rail company Norfolk Southern carry out and pay for a complete cleanup at the site of that toxic train derailment. Regan, along with Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, even drank the tap water in an attempt to assure residents that it's safe. But most of the community are still wary, as the number of people reporting health problems following the wreck nearly three weeks ago is piling up. State opened a new health clinic today to help address those concerns. NBC's Ron Allen is in East Palestine. Ron, what's it look like on the ground? Well, Jason, that clinic just opened today, and it's one of the steps that the officials here have taken to try and reassure the public. There's still these persistent reports of people experiencing health problems like coughing and irritated eyes and, and so forth. And not just worried about health problems now, but in the future, what could happen here once everyone leaves? A lot of concerns about that. That's why that clinic is there. Other than that, the EPA chief here today uh, was here to basically try to turn up the pressure on Norfolk Southern, the train operator, to order them using the uh, the powers of the EPA, the legal authority of the EPA, to f- tell this company that they have to clean up this site to, for, to present a detailed plan of how they're going to do it and to pay for it. And the EPA has the authority to step in if they think the process is not going well, do it themselves or with contractors or however, and then build Norfolk Southern as much as three times the cost of this cleanup. So it's unclear how this process is going to play out. The EPA is also trying to reassure residents that they are going to stay on top of the train operator because there's still a lot of concern here in this town that that once the 
attention dies down a little bit, the train operator, Norfolk Southern, is going to leave town as well. They keep trying to say that they are going to accept their responsibility, that they have accepted their responsibility, that they're doing their job, that they're going to be here through the cleanup. They say, for example, how they have invested and given residents as much as $6.5 million in assistance so far, and that's going to continue, they say. Uh, But the bottom line is that there are huge issues of trust here, mistrust, distrust. Residents don't trust the testing, which officials say is going to go on for indefinitely. They don't trust the train operator to clean up this disaster. And so all this is going to take some time to play out. Meanwhile, the residents are hoping that their town, that their town essentially survives, comes back, because there's a lot of feeling right now, a lot of dread about what the future might bring here, despite the reassurances from a lot of officials. NBC's Ron Allen in East Palestine, Ohio. Thank you. And that's tonight's readout. Joy's back tomorrow night. Get the latest updates on this year's high stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.